Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. It's Monday, July 19th. We're halfway through the month of July, which is kind of an astonishing thing to think about as time marches ahead so quickly uh, these days. Um, But we are very happy to have you here for the start of another week on Political Rewind. It's Monday, which means Jim Galloway, the former AJC political columnist, longtime reporter, on politics in Georgia. There really are few people who have the history of Georgia politics and, for that matter, the politics of the Southeast and nationally as Jim Galloway. How are you doing, Jim? I'm doing fine. What a polite way to say that I'm old. <laughs> well, you're still younger than I am, so uh, I give you that. Uh, Jim, did you watch him on the cobblestones at, in the 21st stage of the Tour de France yesterday? I, I- I had to watch on the uh, on on the on the replays, and it was a, a little disappointing. You know, I mean, I was looking for Mark Cavendish to take that that, that stage win and break the record, yep. break Eddie Merckx's record, yep. but it didn't happen. He only finished second. Yep. But on the other hand, he'll be back next year, and his story is pretty remarkable. Up until about a week before, he didn't even have a team to ride in the race on, and the big story, of course, Tade Pogaccia. 23 years old, wins his second Tour de France in a row. And not only does he get the yellow jersey and win the entire thing, he's also the king of the mountain winner, uh, the young rider winner. He's going to be a force to reckon with in the years ahead. And you know, Jim, there's probably about seven people listening right now who love the Tour the way we do. Thank you for being here today, though. Uh, Representative Sam Park joins us uh, today as well. He's a Democrat from Lawrenceville. Sam, your story is always interesting. Your grandparents um, fled uh, Korea during the Korean, South Korea, during the uh, Korean War. They were refugees who moved to the United States, I think, in the 1980s and um, set you up for uh, a life of uh, professional uh, success, and including being a member of the Georgia State House. Welcome to the show. Always happy to be here, Bill. Um, and yes, I think my story is a reminder to me and hopefully to others that the American dream is very much alive and, and well, so long as we do our part to protect our democracy. Looking Thank- forward to the conversation. Yeah, good to have you here. Dr. Adrian Jones, a professor of political science. You, um, Adrian, you teach courses in politics, race, and law. You're the pre-law director at Morehouse College. But I think particularly for the conversation we're going to have today about uh, Senator Klobuchar's hearing here in Atlanta, we should point out that you have studied voting rights for a long time, and your doctoral dissertation was titled The Voting Rights Act Under Siege, the development of the influence of colorblind conservatism on the federal government and the Voting Act of Voting Rights Act of 1965. That's a mouthful, Adrian, but it'll be uh, valuable in our conversation today. Hi. Well, hi. Thank you. Good morning. And yeah, um, we've had a long road, a much longer road than um, it feels like towards this chipping away of the Voting Rights Act. Um, so these things are surprising now, but they've been a long time coming. 
Thanks for joining us. Uh, Julianne Thompson, we're awfully glad to have you back as well. Listeners to this show have heard you many times. You're a Republican strategist, have been an activist in Republican Party politics in the state of Georgia for a very long time. No, how are you, Julianne? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for having me this morning, Bill. Absolutely. All right, let's get right to it. Um, Jim Galloway, so... Um, Senator Klobuchar, who is the chair of the Rules Committee, um, has decided to hold a field hearing in Atlanta today, specifically around what she sees as uh, problems with the Georgia election law. And um, a couple of things are interesting about that. Uh, number one, it's the first time there's been a field hearing of the Rules Committee in many, many years. But number two is the Rules Committee usually is kind of a sort of an arcane group that works on internal issues within the United States Senate. Klobuchar has decided to expand its work dramatically to include voting rights. And before I bring you in to uh, share with us some of your thoughts about this as we begin the conversation, let's listen to just a little of why Klobuchar is here. She starts by talking about how the insurrection on January 6th shaped a lot of her thinking. Let's listen. I saw how fragile our democracy was. Uh, we have got to protect it every step of the way because we know that there's a concerted effort going on around this country, led by Donald Trump, still led by Donald Trump, to undermine our elections, to make it harder to people to vote, to literally say to them, you can stand in the sun and know there's no volunteers that can give you water. That is in the Georgia bill. Jim Galloway, um it's fascinating that Klobuchar has expanded the role of her committee and starts in Atlanta, where we should point out uh, we don't expect any Republican members of her committee to join in this hearing today. Right, right. But it, uh, what strikes me is that why this is important is because Klobuchar is is from uh, is, is from Minnesota. Is she's more she's more of a centrist Democrat, uh, and she's she is. I think it's fair to say that what she is doing is building a case to bring to Joe Manchin, um, uh, the um, uh, the senator from West Virginia, who holds the key to deciding whether whether this uh, whether uh, any voting legislation will advance uh, via a reformed filibuster system or uh, or 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 in some manner uh, other manner because to get to fifty. Uh, they're not going to get to 60 votes. They've got they've got to do it with 50. Uh, if they're going to get to 50, they need man, uh, they they need Mansion and Cinema uh, in uh, in Arizona. So that's uh, I I think what she's trying to do is put stuff on the record that she can put in front of Mansion. Um, Adrian, jump in here. Um, I think it's important whether the Republicans come or not. Um, we definitely are in a game position where. This big lie about voter fraud just keeps dogging us. Um, I feel like it's becoming a fact, this idea that um, members of the GOP are concerned about the, uh, their ability to trust elections. And we really have to do something to turn that around and to make sure that people have access to the polls. Um, Julianne, uh, the, uh, uh, the Republicans, of course, in Georgia, insist 
that this law has been misinterpreted willfully, by, particularly by the national media, particularly by liberals um, outside of Georgia, but certainly within the state, people like Stacey Abrams and Fair Fight have been uh, highly critical of it as well. Um, so speak to the Republican point of view on this. Well, if you're talking specifically about the Georgia election bill, I, I don't think that I think a big problem and a big challenge that Republicans have had it has been in the way that the bill has been messaged and it and they have not done the best job in messaging this bill. Um, I am going to do a little bit of pushback on what Senator Klobuchar said about people standing out in the sun and volunteers not being able to give them water. That is not true. Election workers and election volunteers can give people water or whatever they need, but it's campaign and partisan volunteers that are at the polls that are not allowed to give out anything. Um, and Republicans are citing, uh, you know, being that that would be able to influence voters. So there is a difference between the two. That being said, I think Republicans do have a challenge when it comes to messaging about this bill. And I think that likewise, Democrats have a challenge uh, when it comes to the messaging of the For the People Act. Um, and, and, you know, there is a big difference between the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Act. Um, and, you know, the reason that Republicans oppose the For the, For the People Act, uh, mainly the four big reasons are the federalizing of elections, um, what they feel is curtailing free speech uh, with regard to campaign finance, um, they feel that they are weakening election security through this bill, and of course that they're using this bill to give statehood to D.C. to prop up um, more Democrat votes. Um, so I think those are the main challenges for both parties when it comes to this. I, I think it's always important to remember how we got here. And, you know, the impetus continues to be the perpetuation of the big lie. First, that there was massive widespread fraud in November that then continued to be uh, spun into this new lie that we need all these voter suppression laws uh, across multiple state legislatures, and that the, the, the new lie now being that these voter suppression laws will make it easier for folks to vote and harder to cheat. That implies that there was a bunch of cheating going on during the uh, November elections. And, and again, it's very concerning when millions of Americans, because of all these lies that they are continuing to be fed, believe to the core of their core that, that Biden is not the legitimate president. And, and I think that's so damaging uh, to our country and our republic that so long as your Republican base, base voters are animated by this lie, unfortunately, the Republican Party seems to be a clear and present and ongoing threat to our democracy, which is why we have to have these, these sorts of unprecedented action by a federal government to intervene and, and protect the right of American citizens to vote. Um, yeah, just if, if I could uh, just take a little bit of issue with Julianne. Uh, uh, the, uh, the, the SB 202 does allow election workers to set up water stations. It doesn't mandate them. It allows them. Uh, that's first of all. And also, but it, it does prohibit any other individual from passing water or 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 snacks, but uh, to a to a a person in line. If I am in line in Georgia now and I hand a, a bottle of water to the person behind me, I am subject to arrest. That's the law. 
It's 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 pretty it's it's written pretty clear, and I think Republicans, if they had a chance to do it over again, would take that out because it's it it, uh, it, it was quite unnecessary and uh, and rather inflammatory. I, I think that Julianne and then Adrian, I want I would love for both of you to weigh in on this. And Julianne, let me give you a chance to respond to Jim, but but let me put it in this context. Uh, Sam talks about the fact that one of the easiest ways for Democrats to attack the Georgia law is to point out the underpinnings of it, that there was massive fraud in elections in Georgia and across the United States um, when we know, in fact, there wasn't. And, and so it's, that creates, I think, a, if nothing more, a communication problems for Republicans, uh, Julianne. But then the other thing is, the water th- issue, which, which Jim says maybe Republicans would take back if they had a chance, is another issue that in many ways, I mean, it's there because there are people who stand in line five, six, seven hours and they need some refreshment. But it does seem like such a very strange hill for Republicans to t- take a stand on. And it's so easy to attack it as inhumane, Julianne. And I understand people's frustration with that part of of the of the law, um, but you know there is nothing that prohibits you know people from getting water. Um, as far as people walking over and and giving individuals water that are standing in line or having a water station set up for people to be able to get water from. I mean, the water is available to people, and this is the one area that people seem to have focused on with regard to this bill, um, because it, you know, the way that it has been messaged by the left has been uh, very effective in tearing down people's confidence in this particular bill. However, I, you know, I, I respect Jim and I understand where he's coming from, um, but I'm going to disagree with him on the fact that this bill prohibits people from getting water. It just, it just doesn't. Election workers can have water available for people. And, you know, I, and I know that we're, we're continuing to talk about this same subject over and over and over again, uh, but there have been issues where election uh, partisan election volunteers and and poll watchers have approached people in line giving things out with regard to snacks and with regard to to drinks that have sometimes had campaign um, insignias on them and i think that that is what they were trying to go for you know if they want to revisit the way that that part of the bill is worded that is something that the legislature can most certainly do. Adrian, I think we've got to be concerned. I mean, water is one thing. I think people can be trained to bring their own water. Um, I'm concerned about things like not being able to vote provisionally. I've watched elections in the state of Georgia now since 2018, and um, people are not necessarily informed by MVP where their proper um, polling location is. Um, this, from my perspective, happened from a lot for a lot of voters of color um, who are at issue here. Um, also, the fact that the state can um, interrupt the work of precincts or um, shut precincts down or refuse to certify the election um, in just Georgia and Arizona. This has a huge impact on the Electoral College in 2024. I mean, these are major issues um, 
And they've used some language from this North Carolina case that um, where North Carolina passed its voter ID law and the court ultimately denied them and said that it was um, drawn or, you know, drawn up with surgical precision. And I mean, what we're seeing in Georgia and in these other states are rule selections that are designed to confuse people and dissuade them from being effective in elections and to solve the problem that the former president had in the last election, um, to be able to work with perhaps him to not certify the election as it is actually counted. Um, And these are, I mean, this means no democracy for people. Sam Park? So, yeah, I mean, I think the the criminalization of handing out water and, and food is just it, it pops out at you just given, you know, why. And I, I'm still confused as to why my colleagues thought this was such a good idea, that this was a reasonable provision to try and criminalize giving out water, especially when in certain uh, instances in Gwinnett County, the second largest county in the state of Georgia, also the most diverse, folks had to wait four to eight hours in line because of how they allowed polling places to close down over the past uh, few years. Um, My biggest frustration with the new voting law is the way in which they're making it more difficult to vote by mail, which, you know, a lot of other states on the West Coast in a bipartisan manner do a vote by mail uh, or conduct their elections by uh, voting by mail as a secure and efficient, effective way in which to ensure your vote can be counted. Um, But, you know, this new law makes it that much more difficult, uh, placing barriers uh, to utilize mail-in drop boxes and, and things of that nature. And so I think more than anything, voters will experience firsthand beginning during the municipal elections this year and next year, these new barriers that are going to be put in front of them, especially if they want to vote by mail um, and why, right? I, again, I think perhaps, and I hope that more than anything, it's a signal to them that they have to do everything that we that you know possible to ensure that they vote and that their voice is heard. Bill, can um, I can I hear for one second? Yeah. Okay, I was just I just wanted to follow up on what the representative said a little while ago about perpetuating a big lie about voter irregularities. I mean, I, I understand if there are people that have issues with the former president. I understand that there are people who feel that this has gone too far with regard to saying that there was massive widespread voter fraud. But to but to say that there has been no irregularities and that it's a big lie is just not true. That is not true in and of itself. They just found that ballots were double scanned in Fulton County. And that's not just something that Republicans claimed. I mean, there was just an article on it in the AJC. I mean, that is a fact. There were voter irregularities, and that does undermine people's confidence in elections. Adrian? It's not that there are never any voter irregularities. It's that it is not a widespread problem that is impacting the outcome of elections. And this is very important. Um, And then earlier you were saying, you know, people are concerned about the federalization of elections, for example. Um, because of our history, this is something that we've had to do in order to make elections as effective as they were in 2020. So it stands to reason, particularly where we are now engaged 
and engaging a huge lie um, that some federalization is in order because people need to be able to reach the polls in all of the states in the union. So I, I just want to note and really highlight um, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, who, as a Republican elected official in the state of Georgia, put his values and this country before political parties and refused to oversee um, the, the passage of SB 202 in his chamber precisely because he knew that this was a piece of legislation based on a lie that whose effect would ultimately be to make it harder for especially voters of color in the state of Georgia uh, to vote. And again, that's what we have to continue to push back against. And I hope my Republican colleagues will stand up and stand up for the integrity of our elections. And I think a great way of doing that is to begin pushing back on this lie that there was widespread fraud. So uh, I do want to say, and then, Jim, I know you want to jump back in. Julianne, I think the fact that you would bring up these 200 or so votes that it turns out were double counted in Fulton County is important uh, because it does, it, 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 you know, Adrian responds by saying, well, we sure, there are obviously mistakes made in elections. Uh, there are small mistakes. There's not widespread fraud. But Julianne, it does give Republicans something to grab hold of. I understand that. And to try to perpetuate the thinking that uh, perhaps fraud is more widespread. Uh, and, and so I'm glad you brought that up, that up, Julianne. Well, and I'm not sitting here claiming that there's widespread fraud. I, I don't know the answer to that question. And I think that that is why there have been a lot of Republicans and Democrats, including the uh, Democrat uh Fulton County Commissioner Rob Pitts, who have called for a statewide audit of all counties. Well, did, did Pitts say that? I think what Rob Pitts, I have to do a fact check here. I think what Rob Pitts was saying was there's no reason to audit Fulton County because we haven't had fraud. Why would you single out Fulton County? What you really, if you want to do something like that, then let's make it the whole state. I think he was responding to a feeling that Fulton County is being perhaps picked on inappropriately, but, but, but I, I, can't, I can't tell you I know that for a fact, but I'm pretty sure that's right. Jim? Uh, yeah, I think that the, the way it was reported in, in the AJC is, is that uh, House Speaker David Ralston had, had, had called for the GBI to take a look at to, in, into, into the Fulton County situation, and, and, and Commission Chairman Rob Pitts said that uh, if you're going to do that, you need, to, you, you need to, uh, to investigate any other county, and there were plenty, uh, that 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 had little hiccups and 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 gaffes in their in their county county system. If I could get back to the the, the Klobuchar hearing for to, for today and just kind of underline underline the reason why it is just so darned important, it's because the U.S. Supreme Court has all, all but said that 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 any change in voting law, any protections that are going to come to voters uh, uh, against this the, uh, against this move by by red states. Uh, to tighten to tighten requirements, it's going to have to come through Congress. Uh, I mean, this most recent decision by the by the U.S. Supreme Court uh, uh, regarding Section Two uh, and 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 what what burden of proof is there was is it was just a red light because because basically the, the Alito decision said that said that said that. All these small changes that were being made in states uh, is uh, they 
of of course some of them he said were going to be d- discriminatory but you can't you can't uh, overturn a, a, a small change just because of because of uh, some in- incremental uh uh, uh shifts in 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 the voting rules uh the the problem is that the the, the republican strategy has since really t- since 2006 or so has been to make these small incremental changes to 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 uh i've i've always likened it to to point shaving uh you're looking for a percentage point here a percentage point there and and that that's uh, basically the, the the Supreme Court has has okayed that strategy in in this most recent decision. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, Adrian, uh, President Biden is under an awful lot of pressure. He's uh, I, I think the one of the ways that some uh, people in his party and some voting rights activists out there would describe it is he talks the talk, but he's not walking the walk. That Biden has not done enough to forcefully find ways to get, uh, at the very least, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act passed, if not the For the People Act, the much more, much more robust uh, voting uh, rights act. And, of course, one of the ways they'd like him to do that is for him to get behind ending the filibuster in the U.S. Senate. There's also talk, and then it's your turn, about uh, perhaps, and Klobuchar has mentioned it, about trying to get the voting rights bill into the infrastructure bill as a way to get it through. Uh, I, I think this opinion of Biden is correct. Um, you know, it doesn't seem like it's urgent enough for him. And I think, um, number one, in terms of just having had the election and had the support of uh, voters of color, that this is important. He should be speaking about it all the time. He should be urging for a method to pass it through Congress. He should be putting pressure on the Department of Justice to make sure that they are prepared to attempt to protect voters. Um, And to Jim's point about the Bronovich decision in Arizona, um, you know, Section 2 was the only piece of the Voting Rights Act really left to protect when there is discrimination in voting. So whether it is large or small, um, for the court to decide essentially to redesign the purpose of the act such that it's no longer going to be able to provide protection for people, it means that um, H.R. 1 and H.R. 4 need to be passed. Um, the Department of Justice should be addressing states that are discriminating against voters. And if that's not going to be possible through the Voting Rights Act because we don't have um, protection under Section 2, which is slow and costly, and we don't necessarily have preclearance, um, you know, we're not going to have honest elections. If we think this is voter fraud, <laughs> we are definitely going to see it. All right, let's do this. Let's get to the first break of the show. Um, when we come back, I want to, Julianne, I want to give you a chance to uh, talk about a little bit of counter-programming going on in the state today. Uh, House leaders, Georgia House leaders, are holding a uh, hearing on uh, crime in uh, the city of Atlanta, on the out-of-control spiraling gun violence in the city. And uh, we'll talk about that because that's going to be a big election issue in the year moving forward as well. So we'll get to that more on Political Rewind after these messages. Lawrenceville Democratic Representative Sam Park, Professor Adrian Jones, Morehouse College, 
Julianne Thompson, Republican strategist, uh, Jim Galloway, a former political columnist for the AJC with us today. Julianne, uh, House leaders holding their event today at the same day, on the same day, same time, I think, essentially, as the Klobuchar hearings, uh, because they want to talk about what to do about violent gun crime in Atlanta. Um, it was interesting when a few weeks ago, uh, Governor Kemp uh, led the charge in deciding that the state should intervene in some ways. Uh, we do know spiraling gun crime is a huge problem in Atlanta. It's also a pretty good political issue for Republicans moving into the 2022 cycle, right? Well, it absolutely is. Spiraling violent crime in general. Um, you know, this is this is an excellent issue for Republicans. It's a good issue with regard to swing voters, not just about the base of the party. This is an issue that reaches across party lines. Everyone wants their family to be safe. And crime in the metro Atlanta area has spiraled out of control. So I think that that they're headed in the right direction with regard to how they are going into 2022 with focusing on crime as a major issue. Sam, I think the question that uh, Democrats have, of course, is why would the state want to intervene with the city of Atlanta? That said... It appears to me, and there have been panelists on the show who have expressed this point of view, that Mayor Bottoms has kind of given him an opening because for an awfully long time after she said she wasn't running for re-election, she was kind of absent without leave in terms of being the, uh, the, the spokesperson, the leading advocate for cleaning things up in the city, Sam. So if I could push back real quickly, first and foremost, you know, a spike in crime shouldn't be good politics for anybody. Um, you know, polit uh, crime in and of itself should not be politicized, especially after we saw the devastation from the uh, you know horrific Atlanta shooting uh, earlier in March. And if I can take a second just to um, mention Joshua Dodd, who was recently uh, viciously attacked and remains in a coma. Uh, for any of your listeners, please, you know, go to GoFundMe and, and support Joshua Dodd, his partner, and his family um, during this very challenging time. So we've seen a surge in violent crime across uh, the country, really, and to blame it simply on a political party or a lack of leadership, I think, is insufficient. One of the things that I very much hope to hear from the hearing later today will be solutions to the problem. Um, you know, over the past decade, I don't believe that any jurisdiction in the state of Georgia actually defunded the police or decreased any appropriations to their police departments, despite the legislation that was passed earlier this year trying to fix a problem that did not exist. At the same time, I do believe that there have been multiple pieces of legislation passed in the state of Georgia that made it easier for more guns to be brought into the state of Georgia from one, allowing guns, the Guns Everywhere bill that I think was passed under Governor Deal, to allowing guns on college campuses, to a gun reciprocity bill that made it pass both the House and the Senate earlier this year. And thankfully, uh, uh, Speaker Ralston stopped on the very last day of Sunny Die. Uh, myself, along with other colleagues, introduced legislation to ensure that there was a waiting period, which studies have said reduced violent crime, violent homicide by anywhere between 11% and suicides by gun violence by 17%. And so if we're gonna talk about violent crime, if we're gonna talk about the increase in violence across uh, Metro Atlanta, let's talk about common sense uh, gun safety reform as a part of the solution. Adrian? Oh, let's let you. All right, Jim, go ahead. Jump in, Jim. Okay. Well, uh, first first of all, uh, Sam, if you could uh, 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 
two things. If if you could tell us who, uh, just tell our listeners who Joshua Dodd is and what yeah. what, what what happened to him. And also, uh, the the one thing that strikes me about uh, this is they're talking this. Let state lawmakers are talking about crime in in Atlanta. But the phenomenon, the rise in violent crime, is 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 not confined to the city limits of Atlanta. I mean, it's uh, Sam. Could you also tell us? I mean, what's the situation in Gwinnett? Uh, I, I know, I know, we've we've had our troubles out here in Cobb as well. So first and foremost, Joshua Dodd. He's a gay Asian, twenty eight year old. Um, he was viciously attacked, uh, found on uh, the uh, the train tracks. Um, you know, with with his skull bashed in was taken to Grady. I think he's been stabilized, but he's still in a coma. Um, I think they're still looking for, for the perpetrator. Um, but I think in this moment in time, anything that, that you know, we or your listeners can do to, again, um, go to, uh, that, that can support Joshua and his family, again, go to GoFundMe, um, Joshua Dodd, D-O-W-D, um, I think would be greatly appreciated in this um, difficult moment for him and his loved ones. Um, and Gwinnett County, uh, you know, again, I think, Similar to other areas, uh, we've seen um, uh, increases. I, I don't have statistics in front of me, so I don't want to necessarily speak um, without relying on at least preliminary data or facts that are shown. Um, but what I will say is under the new leadership uh, in Gwinnett County, uh, they've been more mindful with addressing crime by ensuring, for example, that mental health uh, experts are deployed if that would be a better way of addressing uh, instances of, of uh, uh, criminality that exist. And I think those reforms are a step in the right direction of addressing uh, crime in a systemic manner. But I think context is important as well. While we've seen an increase in crime over the past year compared to the 1990s, um, I think we're, we're still moving in the right direction in terms of a decrease in violent crime and homicide. Um, Adrian, Sam, of course, makes an important point. I mean, we don't like to think that people getting shot ought to be a political issue, but it is. I mean, it just plain is. And um, it's an issue that I think Republicans see some opportunity to take advantage of because, as Jim points out, you can talk about the city limits of Atlanta and the violent crime there, but it also affects in many ways metro Atlanta, Savannah, other large cities in the state. And, and it's an issue that the independent voters, the suburban voters who swung over to Joe Biden and, uh, and John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock in 2020, uh, might be a little bit more concerned about in terms of voting for if the Republicans can persuade them to swing back because they're the law and order party. I think this is important. And, um, you know, I continue my understanding too that um crime i think becomes racialized right i mean it's it's not just we're not just talking about crime we're talking about sort of who we think is doing crime and what that means which is why you want to focus for example on atlanta as opposed to the greater area um i also am concerned about um the defund the police right people don't like this as a phrase um and we haven't had a defunding of the police in georgia so I think it's really important that people understand both that um, the mental health, um, the safety of the city, um, housing, these kinds of uh, fixes that help people to be in the position where they are not engaged in crime are very important. And it's also important um, to pay attention to the fact that we do need authorities. We do need police. 
um, but that there should be some balance. And so I have to agree with Sam that solutions are really the most important piece here as opposed to uh, increasing the dog whistling and the um, political inferences that can come from a discussion like violent crime in Atlanta that's not controlled by um, our current mayor. Julianne, let me give you the last word on this before we move on to another topic. Well, Bill, I think just as you said a few moments ago, people being shot does deal with political issues. And both parties have politicized crime waves. Um, And we're not talking about just Atlanta. We're talking about Metro Atlanta, which is what I said when I was speaking earlier, which includes all the counties surrounding Atlanta, Gwinnett, Cobb, not just Fulton County, but all the surrounding areas where crime waves have really increased. And, you know, and I think that both parties have used these issues to suit their narratives, just depending on how they want to phrase, uh, to phrase how they are having their town halls and what the subjects of their town halls are. Both parties have done that. And it is valid. It's valid for both parties to do that and to address this issue. And yes, I agree with both the other panelists that solutions are the most important thing. But to say that one party is politicizing this over another is just disingenuous. All right, let's do this. we got to get our final break of the show out of the way, but we'll be back with more talking about a very important federal court ruling on DACA, and we'll get to that after these messages. Uh, Morehouse Professor Adrian Jones, you've devoted a good deal of your academic life to uh, researching voting rights. And so I think it's appropriate to start uh, with you just for a moment on uh, talking about the fact that we just marked the one-year anniversary since the death of John Lewis over the weekend. There were many uh, ceremonies in various parts of the country, including out in San Diego, a naval ship, a U.S. naval ship John Lewis, christened. Uh, in his honor out there, and of course, the one of the most important voting rights. There's two voting rights bills in Congress right now. One of them carries his name, and if of the two of them, it's the one that many people think has a somewhat uh, better chance of getting passed. But more to the point, we've lost John Lewis, and a year later, it seems like not a lot has changed. It really seems like it hasn't, and. Um his is a huge loss, I think, not only because um, he was John Lewis, but I think that in terms of what we're talking about right now, um, Amy Klobuchar being in the area doing these hearings, um, you know, John Lewis did a great job of staying on message with regard to the fact that people need to have access to voting. And um, so I think it's unfortunate that we've lost him at this particular juncture, and I think it's important that uh, we remember who he was, that we remember his message, and um, that people understand that it this impacts everyone. Jim? Yeah, and, and uh, look, it's, it's – uh, uh, it, it, 
last year we saw the passing of a giant. I mean, and it was more painful because we were all locked in our houses at the same time. But one thing, one thing I would, I would, I would just like to make make sure that we don't forget C.T. Vivian. Well, that's right. He too. Needs he died. To be he died within. I mean, he and and Lewis passed within hours of each yes. other, and 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 his death was was uh, rather overshadowed. C.T. was was he, he was he was the quiet man of the civil yeah. rights movement. Yeah. You know, always there with Andy Young and 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 with MLK. But he was never really out front. Uh, over at the AJC, my, my former colleague, uh, Ernie Johnson, uh, early, Ernie Johnson, Ernie Suggs, excuse me, uh, has a has a, has a, a wonderful piece on 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 Mr. Vivian and and the library that he collected. Mm-hmm. This man had an incredible library. He has a copy of of Phyllis Wheatley's 1733 book of poems. This was the first book published on uh, on on this continent by a by a black woman, uh, and 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 it's going to be part of a, a a public library with his name on it about a hundred yards from the the this this last statue of of John Lewis that's gone up in Atlanta. You know, it, Julianne, there's something kind of interesting, um, and forgive me for a big reach here. Uh, we know that John Adams and Thomas Jefferson died within hours of each other, two of the founding fathers of this country, both of whom, though, uh, well, for, well, Jefferson particularly, dealt with the fact that he was a slave owner. Uh, Adams didn't. He was up in Massachusetts. But nevertheless, they both had to grapple with that issue. They died within hours of each other. And so does C.T. Vivian and John Lewis, modern-day heroes trying to make America the democracy, perhaps, that uh, Jefferson and Adams conceived it to be. Uh, that's a little bit of a stretch, but I think it makes sense, Julianne. Well, I understand where you're coming from, and I, I truly believe that there are spiritual connections between people. You know, terrible things have happened in the South, absolutely. But the same place that gave birth to the hate and the prejudice that that so plagued this part of the nation also gave birth to the love and the light and the justice that overcame it in people like John Lewis and C.T. Vivian. And I think it's a perfect example of, to paraphrase the scripture, what was meant for evil, God took and turned it into good. And I think that we have so much to be thankful for. Um, for these great men. So I, I'm very glad that, um, and, and look forward to all the uh, ceremonies where we will be honoring the legacy of John Lewis and C.T. Vivian, but more than just honoring them with our words, I think the greatest contribution that we can make for them is to honor them with our actions in passing H.R. 1 and, and H.R. 4. And to Sam's point, I think, um, and to C.T. Vivian's family's point that, you know, people are not as aware of C.T. Vivian, for example, as a John Lewis. And some of that has to do with our emphasis, right? Martin Luther King is, you know, the civil rights movement activist. But the civil rights movement was made up of every single, lots of people who are not known. And so in this moment, like today, where we're talking about voting and we're talking about crime, I want people to understand that they do have power individually. You don't have to be the most popular civil rights movement activist um, to have to make a huge difference in your community. Um, and so, you know, we're asking Congress to act. Um, but what we need is for people to stay motivated 
and uh, to do their small part, even if you know they don't become C.T. Vivian or John Lewis or um, as name recognized as these activists were. I beautifully said by all of you. Thank you so much for your comments. Um, by the way, we should say that C.T. Vivian's son, Al Vivian, has been a on our show on a couple of occasions, and he's carried on his father's work. He leads one of the most influential diversity and inclusion programs in uh, in the Southeast. And uh, he. so we think about Al on the anniversary uh, this weekend of his dad's passing. All right, DACA. Uh, Jim Galloway, a federal judge, a district court judge in uh, Houston. Andrew Hannon, this week, Last late last week, rather, said that President Barack Obama had exceeded his authority when he created the program uh, by executive order in 2012. But, Jim, the judge wrote the current program recipients would not be immediately affected and that the federal government should not take any immigration, deportation or criminal action. And he also said that the government can continue to take applications for DACA protections. They just can't approve them. So I, I got this sense that the judge uh, looked at Obama's order and said, ah, the, the, the executive shouldn't do it, but we don't want to mess up this program too much at this point. Let's let the Supreme Court decide. Right. And, and, and that's, how we're, that's how we decide big issues now, because we can't rely on a Congress to take them up. That it's going to be it, it. You're going to have five justices on on the court decide whether whether these these you can't even call them children anymore. These are these are grown these these are grown adults with something like a quarter a quarter of a million children of their own who were born on U.S. soil, whether they can stay in this country or not. Uh, and it's 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 uh, it's Kafka esque and it's and it's and it's. Uh, absolutely cruel because you've got so many people whose career depends on whether they're they can go they'll be able to go to work in the morning sam so i I think the daca program is so important um really for not just the recipients but also to demonstrate uh, the 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 humanity of the united states of america i mean you know i think two hundred thousand daca recipients were on the front line as essential workers uh, amidst this pandemic they are contributing uh, members of our community, and so to then, um, you know, pull the rug from under them and deport them to countries in which they are completely unfamiliar with, I think, is just the wrong direction. And and hopefully, and I think the, uh, you know, there's a, a majority of Americans who support allowing Dreamers to continue to stay in the United States of America. And so hopefully, our Congress um, will act um, and and do its um, job of ensuring legal protections um, uh, for for these valuable contributing members of our community. Uh, Julianne, we have approximately 20,000 DACA recipients here in the state of Georgia, but we have a pool of about 40,000 who would could apply because they meet the eligibility requirements. Again, the the judge in this case didn't say the applications couldn't go through uh, couldn't be couldn't be submitted. He just said they can't be approved. Um, your thoughts on this, Julianne? Well, I think he he struck sort of a compromise here. Um, in the fact that you know there have been a lot of people that that have disagreed with President Obama's executive order. Um, not necessarily in 
in the uh, in, in what the executive order said as much as the whole idea of executive orders. That's where I'm coming from. I I just believe that there's been too much overreach with past presidents, not just President Obama, but President Bush and President Trump as well, with too many executive orders. That being said, um, I, I think that I, I don't believe in going back back retroactively and making deporting people who feel that they came into this country and applied for citizenship and applied for amnesty through a program that was legal at the time. However, going forward, I do know that it is very important to a lot of the Republican base, as well as elected officials and a lot of swing voters as well, to make sure that immigration is legal. And um, I think that this judge struck a good compromise here, and I think it takes pressure off of a lot of elected officials who I wish would have actually come through with some sort of a solution rather than just keep kicking the can down the road. But it takes pressure off of them and puts the burden on the, the Supreme Court, and which I honestly think that that has been the desire all along, all along with regard to Congress. Uh, Jim, we have talked about it on the show over and over again. There have been attempts by Republican presidents, by Democratic presidents over the decades to find a way to pass a comprehensive immigration bill that would have bipartisan support, and it simply cannot be done. And so you make a really important point, Jim. It, there, Congress doesn't want to act on or doesn't have the will to come together to act on this. So it will be the Supreme Court. And then if they once they make their decision, then it's really back in Congress's uh, uh, uh-huh. corner again. Right, right, right. Uh, but but I tell you what, I'm looking at the clock. I'm seeing we're running close on time. Yes. If, if I could if I could defer to Adrian on this one, because we haven't heard from her yet. I, I mean, I just think executive orders are precarious, particularly in this severely polarized environment. Um, and I've had a lot of students who um, initially, you know, DACA was not available, then it became available. These are folks who are working and paying taxes here in the United States. And um, I sincerely hope that we're able to come to kind of some kind of a solution to allow people to have some security about whether or not they're allowed to be in the United States. Adrian, let's hope it's your students who are the ones who will help create a new day in how we people who come out of the universities and work together to solve problems. Fair enough? Absolutely. (laughs) Sam, get a last word in. So I was just going to mention, I think, um, especially given the fact that a majority of Americans support uh, DREAMers, that Congress should have the ability to effectuate the will of the American people. And because they're unable to, I think it just really clarifies yet again why we need H.R. 1 um, in the first place. Um, all right. Sam Park, you get the last word uh, in today's, on today's Political Rewind. Sam, we're so glad you were here. Adrian Jones, we should tell people you gave up a early morning while you're on vacation to join us for the show. <laughs> and that means a lot to us. So thank you for doing that. Julianne Thompson, it's always a pleasure to have you with us. And Jim Galloway. Uh, Thank you, of course, for being with us. We're back again tomorrow with another brand new show. My thanks to Amelia Brock, who's in the director's seat 
uh, today while Sam Burmis Dawes is on vacation. Jesse Neiswanger engineered the show. I'm Bill Nygut. Back again tomorrow. In the meantime, take care. Stay healthy. Uh, think about the right times to wear a mask. And for those of you in parts of the state that haven't thought about vaccinations, now would be a good time to do it. Take care. <laughs>